0: The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit LovingLord.org. Heavenly Father, as we begin this most extraordinary study in the book of Ruth. I ask that you would bless our church, that we might be able to receive by your Spirit the eternal truths that come from this Word, that we might see you as the great Redeemer, calling each of us out of exile and to redemption through your Son. That we might see you as the one who acts graciously towards us even as we rebel against you. And that we might see, Father, your sacrificial love towards those who do not love you until you loved us first. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word and, and I praise you for this particular book, this small narrative that opens up so many truths about You and ourselves. I pray, Lord, over the next few weeks as we study it, that You would not only make those truths known to us, but that we would desire by Your Spirit to live in accordance with them, Father. We do not want to be people who merely hear and do not do. We want to hear and do for Your glory. And so make that happen, I pray. Use this incredible true story to cause us to see Christ more clearly, I ask as well that You would draw us near to Him, knowing, Father, that the relationship we have with Christ is what enables us to live in accordance with Your Word. We do not want to be those who do what's right in our own eyes. We want to do what's right according to You and Your Word. And so help us with that this morning, I pray. Uh, bless us with your spirit, Father, that this might be a time of true worship. We do not want to merely go through the motions and, and hear another sermon and not be changed by it. I ask that you would transform us. You must do that, and we must be receptive to you doing that. So I ask that you would, and I ask that we would. Be gracious in that way, I pray. Father, magnify yourself. Bring yourself glory during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Book of Ruth. <clears throat> this is a book that I have thought about preaching on for probably five years now. And every time I get near it, for some reason, I did not say yes to it. Um, it's appropriate for us. We were in the New Testament for a while. It's appropriate for us to get back to the Old Testament. This book is going to be, it's a very special book. If you know Ruth, then you love the book. Um, it's a very early piece of literature. Um, I'm thankful to be back in a book. I have a, a pastor friend that I meet with regularly, and he he jokingly said, "Have you have you faithfully confessed your sin for being in topical sermons for so long?" <clears throat> and I said, "Yes, I have." He said, "Are you going to get to a book?" I said, "Yes, I am." I said, "We're starting Ruth." And he said, "Okay, I'll stop praying for you in that way then." Um, <clears throat> so Ruth is a it's a narrative. It's a story. It's a short story actually. Um, and, and narratives in the Bible, they're a little more challenging than, like if you study the law or you study the letters, it's, it's really clear on what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to live. Narratives require us to do what's called a little mining, in that we have, to, we have to look into the story and we have to dig into the story, kind of like an onion, we peel off layers. And every time we peel off a layer, truths are revealed. Truths about God, truths about man, truths about the world, about Christ, and we're going to see so many incredible truths come from this great book. And it is, it is considered um, by both um, biblical and non-biblical scholars as one of the great narratives of, of ancient times, not only because the, the story reveals so much about God, but because it's such a well-told story. When you read it, you're caught up into it, the, the plot line, the character development, the, the climax. And then the resolution of that climax, it all makes for a story that should be in the box office, although I don't think they would handle it that well, and I don't think it would come out like we would want it to come out. So Ruth is, it's like all good stories, it's, it's filled with lots of sub-themes and sub-plots, which by God's grace, over the next few weeks, we'll, we'll have a chance to look at them and, and study them in detail, but it is a story that has one central theme. And all stories do. And what we want to do is we want to look at these sub-themes and we want to say, how do they pertain to the main theme of the book? And so you say, well, what is the main theme of the book? And that all depends on, on who you ask. Um, some say that the primary theme of the book of Ruth is, is God's faithfulness to his covenant with David. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, we, we will end with David. The book ends with David. And so some argue that it's God's blessing of David's family line redeeming them so that David could actually come to be. Others argue that the book is about God's grace, his, his grace in particular on Naomi, who, by the way, is the primary character of the book, not Ruth. And that may surprise you a little bit, but you'll, you'll see that develop certainly starting today. Some say that it's just God's grace upon this woman who put herself in exile, and he brings her back, and he redeems her, and he doesn't just redeem her, but he, he puts her in the line of the Savior, our, our king, and others argue that the book is about hesed. You've probably heard that term before. Hased is a, a Hebrew word that, that means love. Uh, not romantic love like we think in the West, but a, a sacrificial relational love. In fact, it's such a, a multifaceted and deep word in the Hebrew. It's translated steadfast love, mercy, kindness, goodness, favor. Just about any positive affirmation in a relationship can be attached to it. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Ruth, he put said like this. He said, said wraps up in itself all the positive attributes of God. That's an incredible statement. Love, covenant, faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, said is that, listen, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. That's God loving us as we will see him loving Naomi and the main characters loving one another. Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, as they interact, we see this incredible has said this incredible one another love and certainly should provide examples for us on how we are to love one another in the body of Christ. So what is the theme of the book? Well, here's going to be the theme for the entire sermon series. Are you Ready? It's not good if you're not here today because you're going to kind of miss the whole point, right? The theme for the series is this. God's steadfast love for Naomi, restoring her from emptiness and death, is available to all Jew and Gentile who put their faith in the greater David, Jesus Christ. I'll read that one more time. God's steadfast love for Naomi, which we will see, Restoring her from emptiness and death is available to all Jew and Gentile who put their faith in the greater David, Jesus Christ. And that means, my beloved, that this story, as you listen to it, is not just a story about a family in ancient times. This story is about you too. Because God moving you from exile into redemption can take place in your life through the greater David, Jesus Christ. So with that theme in mind, I, I, I want to start telling you a story. I love stories. Mankind loves stories. And in the context of the Bible, stories, well, in fact, stories back then, they actually were ways to reveal truth. We don't, we don't think like that. You want truth? Give me a law. You want truth? Give me a dictate. Well, in ancient times, they would, they would tell stories to reveal truths. And of course, stories in the Bible reveal to us eternal truths about God and about man. And so during the book of Ruth, as we develop these things, I'm going to, I'm going to preach a little differently in, in the book of Ruth. You know, usually what you do is you hear me, I'll, I'll give you a proposal or a thesis statement, and then I'll tell you what the three main points are, and then we'll work through that and we'll close the sermon. <clears throat> we're going to do in, in the narrative, what we're going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to give you scenes from the story, and I'll give observations of those scenes, but I'll, I'll wait till the end to give you the main point and to give you the applications to the story. It's actually, I think it will prove a, a little better way to approach the biblical narratives. So today we're going to start Ruth chapter 1. If you're not there, book number 8 in your Bible. Get to Judges and do a, halt, a hard stop because there's only four chapters or you're going to blow right by it. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 and we're going to look at three scenes. Since most of us are, are part of a culture that watches movies, this will probably be easier for us to receive. Scene number 1, you ready? The way that seemed right. Scene number two, the way that ended in death. And scene number three, the way that offered hope. Three scenes this morning from chapter one, verses one through six, the way that seemed right. Scene number two, the way that ended in death. And scene number three, the way that offered hope. I'm just a little excited to preach this. A little excited. Scene number one, the way that seemed right. Look at verse one again. The narrator tells us in the days When the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So our story we learn starts... In the days of the judges. Now that's early in Israel's history. If you remember, that's the time between them taking the promised land in Joshua and before the calling and reigning of King Saul. It's about a 450 year period of time. But the narrator tells us that as something more than merely a time stamp of when the book of Ruth took place, or the story of Ruth took place. He tells us that because it's a testimony of the spiritual condition of God's people when the story was taking place. In the days of the Judges, if you know that story well from the book of Judges, you have 450 years of tumultuous times. In fact, there was a cycle in the book of Judges that was very clear. God's people would be living in obedience to God. They would turn from God. God would bring someone to discipline his people, usually a, a foreign oppressor. And they would oppress these people for a period of time. The people would finally cry out to God, and then God would what? He'd send a deliverer, a judge. You know some of those judges. Many of them, you know, Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah and Gideon, and, of course, all of us know Samson. And they would deliver, God would deliver his people for a time, and then they would go back and they would sin and rebel again. And that cycle got worse and worse and worse until the end of the book of Judges where we have that horrific verse in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, you know it, the book ends saying, In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone what? Did what was right in his own eyes. It's a chilling end to the 450-year reign of the judges. But this is the context in which the book of Ruth takes place. In the time of the judges, in the time of sin and rebellion and God's discipline of his people. In fact, we see that right from the onset. In verse 1, we're told what? There's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land. Now, that was one of the many curses that God said he'd bring upon his people if they lived in sin and rebellion and broke his covenant. Leviticus chapter 26, listen. God said, I will discipline you for your sins. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And otherwise, no rain's coming. For your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So the story begins with famine in the land, and we hear about this man named Elimelech, and he's, a, he's an Ephrathite. That's, that's someone from the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim, if you remember, was one of the sons of Joseph. Right? So he's an Ephrathite from Bethlehem, and you know Bethlehem. That's the Bethlehem in Judah. That's where Jesus was born, where David is born. Now, ironically, Bethlehem, it literally means house of bread. It means house of bread, and yet they're in a famine, and Elimelech decides that he's going to look elsewhere for bread. So what does he do? <clears throat> he picks up his entire family, his wife Naomi, his sons Malon and Chilion. And they go looking for bread. But they don't just go somewhere to look for bread. He takes his family to sojourn. That's supposed to be temporary, but we know it's not. To sojourn in the land of Moab. Moab, as you know, was an enemy of the Israelites. It was a country to the southeast of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Dead Sea. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. It's common sense. He's a husband and he's a father and his family is starving. So it makes common sense that he would, he would leave this place, Bethlehem, and he would go and he'd look for food. This seems like something that is reasonable and something God would actually be in favor of. But what we miss, those in El- Elimelech's day and certainly those in the day that the book was being written, probably sometime after uh, the reign of David, they did not miss where he went to find food. Elimelech was a child of Abraham. Elimelech was part of the covenant promise delivered out of Egypt, brought into the promised land to be what? A special possession of God. In other words, he had no right to leave. He had no right to take his family out of Bethlehem, out of the house of bread, to leave Judah, and he certainly had no right to go to Moab. Moab was a place, a persistent evil. You know how Moab started. Moab started from the, the consummation of the child between Lot and his eldest daughter. Moab, Moab has been and was, for Israel's history, that place that was constantly pressing against God's people. You remember the, the prophet Balaam went out from Moab to put a curse on Israel. And it was the Moabite women, when the Israelites were in the desert, that tried to tempt the men to come and be married and worship their false gods. And we also know that even in the time of Judges, it was King Eglon, the king of Moab, that suppressed and oppressed the Israelites for 18 long years. In other words, my beloved, going to Moab, Moab even for food, was a treasonous act against God and against God's people. It was the wrong thing to do. In fact, the narrator emphasizes this for us this decision that Elimelech makes to to go to Moab to find food, it's emphasized in the latter part of verse two. Look at verse two. Again, this is kind of missed. For it. It sounds descriptive, but it's been repeated by the narrator in two verses. They were Ephrathites, speaking of the family, from Bethlehem in Judah. That's where they belonged. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. In other words, the emphasis is, look, they're supposed to be here and they're over here they're committing treason against God and his people. You say, well, why, why, how could this be so grievous, pastor? I mean, you've got to give the man a break. There's a famine. He's hungry. His wife's hungry. His children are hungry. Why is this such a grievous thing? Well, here's why. God explained that if you rebel, that if you sin, God says, listen, I'm going to bring discipline against you. I will bring a foreign oppressor, I will bring a famine in order for you to repent and turn back to me. God promised this, but he also promised the people that in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their famine or their oppression, if they repented of their sins and turned back to God, he would what? He would bring blessing. Deuteronomy chapter 30, listen. God said, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, Elimelech, you and your children, Malon and Kilion, and obey his voice in all that I command with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your ground. In other words, there was an answer to the famine, but it wasn't fleeing to Moab. The answer was fleeing to God, turning to God, repenting of sin, and being blessed by God as a result. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. That's what his name means, but he was not living by the commands of his king. He was very much a man of his own time, doing what was right in his own eyes. In his own eyes, he thought it was wise and smart to go to Moab instead of repenting and turning to God to be blessed by God. Elimelech would have been the poster child for Proverbs 14, pursuing a way that seemed right to a man but in the end leads to death. That could have been his resume. Now I fear many of us, if we're honest with ourselves this morning as professing Christians that we're we're more like Elimelech than not, in many ways we do what we think is right in our own eyes rather than what God calls us to do in his word. Especially, my beloved when we're faced with crisis. This was crisis. They were hungry. Hungry drives people to do extreme things. This is crisis. I want you to take a second and think about the last major crisis in your life. The last major one. Maybe it, maybe it was the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one. Maybe your last crisis was a lifelong relationship, a spouse, a child, or a friend that has gone bad. It's, it's no longer as it used to be. Maybe, maybe you got caught cheating on a test, or maybe you got caught lying to your employer and you were fired. You suffered extreme consequences for your sin. How did you respond in that moment of crisis? Was it repentance and faith? Did you Did you turn to God? Did you go to his word? Did you say, Lord, what should I do in this situation? Because the Bible always speaks to it. Or did you turn to Moab? Thank you. Did you seek? Did you seek an answer, not in God's word, but in the world? Or maybe in sin? As someone who claims Christ, if you claim Christ... You claim Christ to be your king. His word is to rule our lives. In the moment of crisis, did you respond more like Limelech, whose name means God is my king, but did not submit to the king's clearly revealed commands? Friends, it's not the names we claim, listen with all your might, it's the lives that we live it's not the names we claim, it's the lives we live, especially in the moment of crisis. Because when crisis comes, you really find out about your own heart and who you're following. When crisis comes and how you responded to that crisis, you get a great picture of who's your God and what word you submit to. So scene one ends with Elimelech and his family living In enemy territory, they're in the darkness of Moab in a way that at that time seemed right to them. But we're only two verses in, and this story goes bad quickly. Scene number two, the way that ended in death. The sage was right. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, the way is death. Look at verse three. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died... And she was left with her two sons. Now, we're, This is verse three. And Elimelech's dead. He's no longer in the story. right? His plan was to, to flee Bethlehem, to flee Israel, to find food in Moab. And it was a foolhardy plan. We don't know how he died. We don't know when he died, but it was probably relatively soon after arriving there. But what we do know is that his decision to protect his family let his family completely exposed. Naomi's now a widow, and his two sons are orphans. A widow and two orphans in enemy tenor territory. They're living in a foreign land without the support of family, the support of friends, and more importantly, without the covering of Yahweh, their God. So his, his plan to provide the way that seemed right to him foods in Moab, not in Bethlehem, go to Moab. the exact opposite effect instead of protecting his family he left them utterly exposed so now with Elimelech dead the the focus shifts to Naomi who is the primary character of the entire book you say what about Ruth Ruth's important what about Boaz Boaz important but it's about Naomi it's about the restoration of Naomi by God so she has a choice to make right I mean, she has her two sons. She can go back to Bethlehem. She can swallow her pride. She can go back to extended family and seek forgiveness, seek God's grace and and be restored, or she can stay in Moab. Now, it's telling. We get a lot revealed about Naomi's heart here. She decides to stay. Not only does she decide to stay, she decides to put down roots. Look at verse 4. These, Malon and Kilion, those are her two sons, they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. Well, that's not sojourning, my beloved. You don't sojourn for 10 years. You've established, you've, you've put down roots, you've made it your home. Now, the narrator does not comment specifically on these mixed marriages, but he does something fascinating here in the original language that I want to I share with you briefly. The Hebrew, words, two Hebrew words are actually more than two, but two that are used primarily for talking about a man taking a woman. The one word that's used mostly when it's a, a healthy marriage is lakak, and, and that means to, to take a, a, a wife in a legitimate marriage. Well, that's not the word that the narrator decides to use here. The word the narrator decides, decides to use is nasha, and nasha means to 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 take a wife in the context of something that's forced, or to take an illegitimate wife. In other words, the, the narrator is sharing with us his displeasure with the fact that Melon and Kilian married two Moabite women. Now you don't need to be a Jew, even today, to know that God's word spoke directly against that multiple times. We know Deuteronomy chapter seven strictly forbade Israeli men or women, from marrying non-Israeli men or women. Mixed marriages at that time was mixed worship. And therefore, it was strictly forbidden by God's word. Naomi, Malon, and Kilian, they certainly would have known this basic teaching of Mosaic law. And yet, what did they do? They followed in Elimelech's footsteps, and they disobeyed God knowingly. This was, not, this was not stumbling into sin. This was not, you know, making the mistake, stubbing your toe, and cursing God's name and then seeking forgiveness. This is willful, intentional marrying of Orpah and Ruth. You see, well, what are the, the consequences of that disobedience? Two things. Orpah and Ruth, there's no indication that they ever gave birth. Their wombs were sealed. And we know that that is a curse from God. So for 10 years, they tried and did not get pregnant but even worse, look what happens. Verse five, both Malon and Killian, what? They die. They die. And the understanding from this story is not, you know, they, they, they were living there and, and they died of natural causes. The understanding is they made willful choices to disobey God's word. They married two Moabite women whose wombs were closed and eventually led to their early demise, a consequence of their sin. And here we are. Five verses into our story. And the crisis, listen, this crisis will not be resolved until the end of the book. The end of chapter 4 reaches its climax. Naomi's life has utterly collapsed. She's an aging widow without sons in a foreign land amongst enemies of her own people and God. Look at verse 5 again. Verse 5 is the, is the climax of the crisis. Both Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. <clears throat> this is a desperate state. No food, no provision for food, no way. Listen, there was no way for her to sustain her life. I mean, they, 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 didn't, they didn't, weren't like the United States. They didn't have government welfare programs. to to pay for widows who lost their sons. She could beg. She could become a prostitute. She could become an indentured servant, a slave. Those were her options as a widowless, widowless, sonless foreigner in the land of Moab. She was very much a walking dead person. In fact, very much like Job, her suffering was such that she probably wished that she were dead. Of those two options, to live as a widow without sons in a foreign land in Moab nonetheless would be worse than being alive. And this is exactly what the narrator wants us to see climaxing in verse five. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Every single time. Naomi is a daughter of Abraham. She was a daughter of the covenant promises and yet she finds herself in this unspeakable situation in large part her own doing. Certainly her own doing after the death of Elimelech. Elimelech, Naomi, her sons Malon and Kilion. None of them took God or His word seriously. We know that in these first five verses they did not believe that they disobeyed God that death would be the result but it was physical death for Naomi's husband and two sons and virtual death for her she has no future in Moab now whether the old covenant or the new covenant you need to know Christian you need to know that death oh I pray that God would cause you to listen Death is the consequence for someone who remains in willful rebellion against God. Old covenant, new covenant. Death is the consequence for the person who willfully remains in rebellion against the living God. It might not be immediate for you. It may be, you may be like Malon or Killian and time may pass. It may be a barren womb. It may be a prolonged death. But you must know that rebellion against God always ends in death. Physical death, spiritual death, relational death is the end for anyone who refuses to submit to the living God and live in obedience to his word. So many in the church today think wrongly that to live under the new covenant it's okay to continue in rebellion against God. That somehow God's grace which forgives us and covers our sins allows us to continue in willful, unrepentant sin. In the church today we we believe that we can make willful, unrepentant choices year after year without consequence of any kind treating the Word of God as optional or supplemental rather than the rule of life. Even though we know the Scriptures teach the exact opposite. That someone saved by grace through faith in Christ will desire to follow God. Will desire to submit to the Word. When Paul was speaking of the person that was born again in Romans chapter six. This is what he said, listen with all your might. He said, what shall we say then to the person who's born again? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. He says this, how can we who died to sin live in it? We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be what? Enslaved to sin And then Paul says, so you also, if you're in Christ, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That is the Christian life. You're dead to sin if you are in Christ. You've been made alive to live a holy life, not like Elimelech, not like Naomi, not like Malon or Kilion. Paul's not advocating sinlessness. He knows there's a battle when you come to Christ. He knows there's a struggle, but but there has to be a struggle. There must be a struggle with sin in your life. And if there is no struggle, then you've capitulated. If you don't struggle with leaving Bethlehem to go to Moab, if you don't struggle with capitulating to the world, if you don't struggle with that sin in your life no one else knows about, you're in great danger this very morning, my beloved just like Elimelech was and Naomi was. There will always be temptation. You will fall, but you're called to confess. You're called to turn. You're called to walk in righteousness, not engaged in prolonged, unrepentant, willful sin. Living in Moab is deadly. The grievous truth for us in the Western church at least, is we're so isolated. We're so isolated in how we live that you <clears throat> and you can profess Christ and you can get baptized and join a church and see people for an hour a week and, and come and go while continuing in willful, unrepentant sin that no one else knows about. No one else except God. God knows. Elimelech and Naomi and Malon and Kion, they they weren't hiding from God in Moab. He knew. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I don't know if you remember this from our study. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man for God. Listen, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Friends, if, if right at this moment, when I say willful, unrepentant sin, sin comes to your mind, and you think to yourself, no one else knows. God knows. You know God knows. You know God knows, but you think he's not gonna do anything about it. He's a gracious God, he's a loving God. He's not gonna take my life like a limb. He's not gonna kill me. He's not gonna end my life early. To claim Christ to get baptized, to become a member of a church, it means absolutely nothing if you continue in willful disobedience against God. It means nothing. Take whatever name you want. Christ is my king. God is my king. If you live in willful disobedience to him, then he's not. The end for you, too, is death. You must know that. Scene one, a way that seemed right Scene two, a way that actually leads to death. I got one more scene for you. I want to discover with you and Naomi a better way. There's actually a way of hope even here in the darkness of these first six verses. Look at, Let's look at scene number three, the way that offered hope. We're five verses in. Elimelech, dead. Malon, Dead. Killian. Dead. No children. Verse 6. Then she, Naomi, arose with her two daughters in law, Orpah and Ruth, to return from the country of Moab. It's not like she had many choices. She can stay as a widow without sons in enemy territory, no future, or she can return to Bethlehem after a decade in exile. She chooses wisely, but I I want you to notice, this is so extraordinary, and and I never saw this before until I got a chance to study this, so I get to share that with you. She only decides to go back because God moves first This is not wisdom. This is not reasoning. She's made nothing but poor choices up to this point in time. God moves, and in so moving, he brings her back. Look at the latter part of verse 6. So she arises. She's going to return to Bethlehem. latter part of verse 6, for, because she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She had heard that God was in Israel, and had blessed them with food again. In other words, the famine that they had been experiencing, probably because of their rebellion in the time of the judges, had been lifted. And because it was the days of judges, it's right to assume that something happened in Israel. They had turned, they had repented, they had put their faith back in God, and God blessed them again. But that's not the only reason that we're told that good news in the story of Ruth In the context of our story, it's also right to conclude that God is using his visitation and his provision to bring her home, to bring Ruth out of her own self-executed exile. Naomi's all but dead. Ten years of rebellion against God has left Naomi in utter shambles. But God, oh, don't you love that phrase, but God? But God has no intention of leaving Naomi there. That's not going to be the end of Naomi's story. Not even close. The narrator uses, and this is this is amazing. This is one of the reasons that the book is is so loved as a a piece of ancient literature. In one verse, verse 6, the narrator highlights four things that God does to magnify his divine grace, and in so doing, grab Naomi's heart. Look, first, she gets word in Moab that God had moved in Israel. Now, my beloved, she's not, out, she's not out in the fields of Moab with her iPhone on her, and she gets a text saying, oh, FYI, God's back. Food's back. How did she hear that? How did she get news? Well, that's God's providential divine grace. She could have easily remained in Moab and never heard what God was doing, but God brings the word to her. Number two, she learns that God had visited her people. Now, that word visited, you think, well, visit is like when someone comes over and they they have a cup of coffee at your house. In the Hebrew, it means to intervene on behalf of someone. It means to come to someone's aid. In other words, she heard that God had come to the aid of his people. Now, if, if Naomi believed that God would have mercy upon the Israelites after their sin and rebellion, then she likely is thinking, maybe, just maybe, he will have mercy on me too. Maybe he will. Number three, the recipients of God's favor are who? His people. She was one of his people. She realizes, she says, I'm a daughter of Abraham. If God would come back and not forget his promise to Abraham and redeem the people, then maybe too, maybe he'll redeem me. And lastly, and probably most compelling, Yahweh brought what? He brought bread. He brought food. He was once again sustaining his people. He made Bethlehem the house of bread by restocking bread in the promised land. And so, probably very much like the prodigal son, Naomi's thinking, why remain here in Moab when there's food in my father's house? Why stay here when I can go home and I can be blessed by my God, his presence and his provision? Verse, latter part of verse 6 again. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God moves. He arrives. He blesses. And in so doing, he pricks her heart and he puts her feet back on the path home. Home to her land, home to her people, and home to her God. This is such great news for Naomi. And we're going to see over the next several weeks, how this develops. Her end is a glorious end. It is full redemption, way beyond her wildest dreams. But it's also, my beloved, it's great news for the generations following Naomi. Great news. You see, centuries later, listen, God would also visit, God would visit his people again. He would send his son in the flesh to intervene on behalf of sinful man. He sent Christ in order to engage the cosmic problem of famine, specifically sin and death, so that what? So that we could be brought out of our rebellion and brought into the house of bread. We know that Jesus Christ came to end the spiritual famine by offering His own body as the bread of life by ascending the Roman cross in our place as our substitute, his broken body, his spilled blood, he did that, that we might be spared what we rightly deserved, which was Naomi's death, Elimelech's death. He visited mankind so that anybody who believed in him could eat the bread of life and have eternal life instead of the death that we deserve. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, that's putting their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he will what? He will live forever. Forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world, he said, is my flesh. So unlike Elimelech, who in disobedience to God fled Bethlehem for an unlawful blessing in Moab, Jesus, in perfect obedience to God, perfect obedience, he left the blessings of his Father in heaven to take upon himself the curse of sinful man. Our famine, our drought, our crisis, our suffering. He entered into it in order to overcome the sin of us doing what? Whatever's right in our own eyes. In order to take us off that path that seems right but actually leads to death. Christ came and and you know, he lived the life that we're supposed to live. He did everything exactly according to the way of God. And then he, he died the death that we were supposed to die. He satisfied perfectly the death that we owe as a result of our disobedience to God, taking the famine, the famine of eternal damnation. You say, well, why? Why would, why would God's Son engage in such a sacrificial act of said? such an extreme love for others. Not just others, but enemies of God. Well, you know why. So all the Elimelechs and all the Naomis and all the Malons and all the Chilions, all the yous and me's that live in willful disobedience to God could be brought out of the darkness and brought into the kingdom so that we could have our feet set back on that path that leads to eternal life, back home to our God, to our people, and to eternal life. Christ did this amazing thing so that all famines, all thirsts, and all longings of your heart and soul could be satisfied in Him. That's His mission, my beloved, to bring you back to God, to bring you back into fellowship, with the children of God, back into a right relationship with your creator. Two applications before we close. Number one, if you identify with the characters in the story thus far, if you find yourself dwelling in the fields of Moab this morning, even though you're here in church, you need to know that you're in grave danger. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul made this very clear. He said in Galatians 6, 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whoever, whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, doing what is right in your own eyes, will from the flesh reap corruption. Corruption but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It doesn't matter how long you've gotten away with the unrepented willful sins in your life. It doesn't even matter what they are, my beloved. Just because time has passed and you haven't seen an immediate consequence doesn't mean that death is not the end. Remaining in, dwelling in, Sojourning in Moab always ends in death. And it doesn't matter how far or how long you've strayed, God is always calling you back. If you say to yourself, it's been too long, Pastor. Too long have I stayed here. Too long have I sinned like this. Yes, I pray. Yes, I go to church. But I am a sinner through and through. And I still love it. Then hear the good news from Bethlehem. God has visited his people. There's bread in the land again. Come out of that sin this morning. Why remain there? Why remain in Moab? Why continue in your sin? Whatever that sin is, even the sins that no one else knows, why stay there when Christ has come and says, eat the bread of life? You have no good reason. You know you have no good reason. True forgiveness and true satisfaction in the midst of our horrible choices are made available to us in Christ. Do you realize that? True forgiveness, true satisfaction, true joy, no more famine is made available to you in the midst of your really, really bad choices. Even this morning if you're in Moab, you can stop doing what is right in your own eyes and start doing what's right in God's eyes. You can stop taking that path that seems right but leads to death because Christ says, I am the bread of life. Come to me. I will forgive you. I will nourish you. I will give you the desire to what? To follow me. Christ says that. The Moab way of life, even if hidden from others, is not hidden from God. So here this morning from these few verses, God calling you out of your sin this morning to him, to his people, to the promised land. Amen? Point number two, last one. When you find yourself in crisis, in the midst of suffering and hardship brought on by yourself, or maybe not, maybe it's just you're a sinner that lives in a fallen world, you must know Moab provides no real relief. There's no lasting satisfaction or salvation in the fields of Moab. The wrong response when famine comes is turning to that sinful solution and we do it all the time, don't we? We need to find that little bit of comfort because the pain's so bad. So I go to food or I go to sex or I go to entertainment, I go to something that's not Christ. Moab will always seem better. The grass will always seem greener, an easier life, more creature comforts, but it's a facade. It's a facade, it's a trick. Moab, this world, sinful solutions to your crisis have no power to save and no power to satisfy. Instead of embracing the world of sin, when crisis comes, God tells us to turn to him. Specifically, you want to turn to Christ because it was Christ who experienced your ultimate crisis. It's Christ who took upon himself the eternal judgment that we rightly deserve. It's Christ who ascended the cross and said what? I thirst because he experienced the famine of sin and death that you and I deserve perfectly and eternally. He knows. He experienced it. So we could, instead of drinking the cup of wrath that he had to drink, we can drink the cup of God's blessing through repentance, through faith, and that means, my beloved, through the gospel you can, be, you can be utterly transformed. right? We have an expectation that the word and the spirit will transform you. Even this morning transformative event taking place before our very eyes. You can be transformed because God not only will forgive you completely of all your sins, of all your days in Moab, making you holy as he is holy, but the gospel tells us and this is the piece that our hearts jump over that even in all your sin and all your rebellion and all the things that you did right in your own eyes knowing full well that they were in rebellion against God you are more loved and more cherished and more valued in Christ than you could ever imagine. That's what the gospel says. Do you know the path that God put Naomi on? Do you know the path that he put his people on when he visited them and brought food to them? It was a path to himself. It was a path to him. A path to enjoy the relationship you were made to have in the very beginning with your creator God. A, a path to an intimate relationship where you are nourished true satisfaction, true joy, without end. When you find yourself on that path, when, when your relationship with God as a son or daughter of this king is really the defining reality of your life, when your primary identity is in Christ, and that identity shapes how you think and how you feel, it shapes your relationships, your work, your decisions, then when crisis comes, regardless of the degree or how severe it is, when it comes, my beloved, yes, it will hurt, yes, it may bring pain and suffering, but you will not cave. You will not go to Moab. You will not turn to the world, and you will not go to sin because you're so satisfied in who you are in Christ, you'll remain in Bethlehem. You'll stay where God is. You'll stay where God's people are, and you'll strive by the power of the Spirit to live in light of God's commands. You will rest in God. You'll turn to him because that's what the gospel does to us. That's how we know that we've really been saved by grace through faith. The moment that you realize, Tim Keller used to use this phrase all the time, I love it. The moment that you realize that you're more wicked than you ever dared believed, and more loved and affirmed than you ever dared hope through the grace of God, in that moment, everything changes. You become what? Unshakable. Immovable in the midst of crisis. No crisis, no hardship, no suffering can separate you from the love of Christ. You are utterly changed by the power of the gospel. You see, when you finally realize that your heart is more wicked than you ever dared believe, then you're not going to rely upon your own wisdom to make these choices which seem right in your own eyes. You're not going to. You're not going to rely upon your own power in the midst of crisis. You won't trust yourself. You won't trust your eyes. Instead, you will turn to God. You'll turn to His Word. You'll turn to His people and you'll say, Give me counsel, give me encouragement, give me prayer. Because you know your heart is worse and more wicked than you ever dared believe. In other words, my beloved, the gospel will make you humble. I'm truly humble. And yet at the same time, you'll be confident and bold, not in yourself, but because of who you are in Christ. And that means in the midst of Christ's peace, not anxiety, joy. Yes, joy in the midst of suffering can be yours Because you are in Christ. Because you know how deeply loved you are in Christ. More loved and more affirmed than you ever dared hope. How could God love a sinner like you? Look to Christ. And if you know in the midst of your crisis that God is with you, if you know that you are deeply loved by God in the midst of the storm, that he is with you, he's protecting you, he's providing for you, and He's drawing you closer to Himself, then you can sustain the crisis of this life until when? Until one day, all the storms cease. Until one day, there is no more crisis for you. Until that day when you find yourself around the throne, amongst the myriad of angels, and the people of God, And crisis is no longer yours. Instead, you find yourself singing at the top of your lungs. Revelation 19, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Amen? My beloved, most of us know the right thing to do. Even in the midst of crisis, we know the right thing to do. That's not the problem. The problem is wanting to do it. The problem, my beloved, is seeing that God's path really is best for you. It's seeing that God really does care for you, that he really does love you. It's knowing, my beloved, that the misguided path is a misguided path. And the hard, narrow path that God sets your feet on in the midst of crisis is one that leads to life and love in Him. God's ways are always right. All the ways lead to death. As we make our way through the book of Ruth, let's pray that God's ways become our ways. As a church, so that we can, as one body, live crisis or no crisis as the most God-honoring, Christ-exalting, Spirit-invigorating lives that we can live for His glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, You've given us a story of Individuals who made really bad choices, Father. Leaving the protection of your presence and your land and your people to seek nourishment elsewhere. We stand guilty. We identify well with Elimelech and Naomi. I ask, Lord, that you'd be gracious with our church. Any soul here right now that is dwelling in Moab, bring them out quickly, please. Anyone who is anxious about a crisis they're in or a crisis that will come, show them Christ. Show them the immeasurable love of the gospel. The fact that sinners like us could be loved so deeply and eternally by a God like you. Show us that, Father. And then crisis can come and go. And we know we can stand firm upon the rock. Father, I pray you would use this book like you've used no other book and no other sermon series to utterly transform your people by the power of the love of Christ. Bring us out of exile and bring us into your redemption. For your glory and our good, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.